On October 4th, 1927, Danish-American sculptor John Gutson de la Moth Borglum, hereafter referred to as Gutson Borglum, began construction on a massive tribute to four former presidents, their visages to be carved on a massive scale into the side of the six grandfathers, a mountain sacred to the Lakota peoples who owned the land on which Borglum began to chisel. Some 88 years later, a man named Lynn manuel Miranda had the opening night of his new Broadway musical, Hamilton, my disdain for which I will make no secret. But we can get into that a little later. So what do these two seemingly widely different things have in common? It's time to talk about the American cultural memory. This is Hidden History, and you're listening to episode 79, Monumental. Hidden History is always available on www.hiddenhistory.show, and if you like what I do, then subscribe to the show on Spotify, review it on Apple Podcasts, and follow the show on Twitter at HIDDNHistoryPod. First off, I totally did not do an episode last week. That was um, sort of an unplanned game day decision that I made like a day before. So I'll be sure to give you a heads up for the next one. But with that out of the way, let's start talking about the Black Hills of South Dakota. In the beginning, before the creation of heaven and earth, the gods resided in the stars, and humans lived in lowly subterranean worlds devoid of light and culture. The god of the sun was in union with the goddess of the moon. But one day a devious spider convinced an old man and an old woman to arrange an affair between the god of the sun and their daughter in order to achieve a higher social status. When the moon found out, their union was dissolved. The god of the sun cast the moon into her own domain and in doing so, created time. That same devious spider, this time taking the form of a wolf, descended into the underground caves where the humans lived and led one up to the surface above. His name was Tokahe, meaning the first. And upon his emergence into the surface through deep within the wind cave, he cast his eyes upon the green grass and the blue sky and the wealth of animals all around him. That is a relatively simplified version of the creation story of the Lakota tribe. When Tokahe emerges from that cave, the wind cave, he emerges into the Black Hills of South Dakota. The Black Hills were a sacred place to the Lakota. The Six Grandfathers, an especially sacred place. The Black Hills were theirs. But that would soon change. 
As the colonists from the East began to spread across North America under the guise of Manifest Destiny, they were greatly inconvenienced by the fact that people had already been living there for a few thousand years. But that would not stand in their way. As ambitious Americans rolled westward across the ever-expanding frontier, the genocide of native peoples followed in their wake. As I think we would all do if someone moved into our house and changed the locks, the native peoples of what would soon be American states fought back. The United States government used the very fact that they were resisting being wiped off the map as a way to further justify their own genocide. The process continued for decades and decades, unmolested and unimpeded a ruthless cycle of murder, destruction, and broken treaties. Eventually, the noble frontiersmen would start their invasion of the Black Hills, continuing the pattern that had started when the first white settler set foot on North America, the Treaty of Fort Laramie, signed in 1851, seemed to provide relative safety to the tribes in the Western Territories. It was supposedly meant to end inter-tribe conflict and create a large swath of land that would forever belong to the tribes of the Great Plains. Unsurprisingly, it turned out that the treaty did not do that. Infighting amongst the tribes emerged almost immediately, and while they were occupied with internal fighting, the United States government did absolutely nothing to stem the tidal wave of settlers pouring into treaty lands as a result of the Pikes Peak Gold Rush of 1858. Of course, they didn't actually want to stop them. It was a tactic the government had been using for quite a long time. First, sign a treaty guaranteeing unabridged native jurisdiction over vast tracts of land, Proceed to do nothing as homesteaders slowly envelop the treaty land. Then respond to native attacks against white colonizers on native land with an overwhelming show of force. The original agreement is in effect dissolved, the native land shrinks, and then the government comes once again, bashful and friendly, armed with a new treaty guaranteeing unabridged native jurisdiction over vast tracts of land. That process is essentially the entire story of American westward expansion. After the first Treaty of Fort Laramie was broken, the United States government offered up the second Treaty of Fort Laramie, signed in 1868. The second treaty had essentially the same goals and stated purpose as the first. It was written to end guerrilla insurgencies that had cropped up since the first treaty was broken, mainly a series of battles led by the Lakota chief Red Cloud, fittingly called Red Cloud's War. One of the other things that the Second Treaty of Fort Laramie did was guarantee that the sacred Black Hills would forever belong to the Lakota. But, as you can probably guess, the Black Hills would not forever belong to the Lakota. The United States would take them, and nothing could stand in her way. The theft of the Black Hills would begin in earnest in 1874, with the start of the Custer Expedition, led by one of American history's many mustache-twirling villains, George Armstrong Custer. They had heard stories of vast riches, 
huge quantities of gold lying in wait in the Black Hills. The colonialist prospectors discovered the first deposit of gold in the middle of the wilderness surrounding the Black Hills. The town of Custer, South Dakota, would rise up around it, named in honor of the man who had opened the virgin wilderness for exploitation and destruction. The deposit in Custer, though, was relatively small, and soon it was mined completely dry. The real riches were discovered a year later in the really cartoonishly named Deadwood Gulch, which to me sounds a little bit like a train ride at a Wild West theme park. But, naming aside, the gold deposits at Deadwood were massive, and even though it was on land promised to the Native Americans as a result of the Second Treaty of Fort Laramie, thousands upon thousands of prospectors flooded into the Black Hills in what would fittingly become known as the Black Hills Gold Rush, which would last about four years, petering out around 1878. Now, of course, I'm not going to go into depth into any of the ways that gold rushes were used to deprive Native Americans of their land in the 1800s. If you want to find more about the politics of the gold rush, then you can listen to episode 29 on the Yukon Gold Rush of 1896. But I'm not here to wax poetic about my episode catalog, so let's continue with the content. The Custer Expedition of 1874 had done its job. The Black Hills were now free real estate for white settlers, and the U.S. government did nothing to stop them, because, I might remind you, that's exactly what they wanted. The threat of encroaching colonizers sparked the Great Sioux War of 1876, also known as the Black Hills War. The Sioux were among the many tribes that had been sequestered into the Black Hills by the Treaty of Fort Laramie, and they simply wanted what had been legally promised to them. Surprise, surprise, in response to the Sioux War, the United States government unilaterally annexed the Black Hills in 1877. It turns out that the Black Hills' term of ownership had been shortened from forever to nine years. And so now that we kind of have the uh, basics on lock, let's actually talk a little bit about Mount Rushmore. Of course, before we do that, I need to talk a little bit about Gutzon Borglum. So the autobiographical details of this guy are not very important, but I'm going to cover them briefly anyway for posterity's sake. The guy was born in 1867 in what was then known as Idaho Territory. So, to put that in context, he was coming of age just as the Black Hills Gold Rush was beginning to take off, and a decade before the government would annex the Black Hills themselves. He would not stay long in Idaho Territory, though fate would bring him back to the mountains of Middle America. No, he moved to the East Coast and became a moderately successful sculptor. His big break came in 1914, when an old woman named Helen Plain, who was presumably very racist given the fact that she was the president of the Daughters of the Confederacy, she asked Borglum if he could design a, quote, shrine to the South, 
on a mountainside in Georgia. When Borglum saw the material he would be working with, he was ecstatic. The massive, untouched quartz face of the aptly named Stone Mountain. He accepted the job and very quickly came up with a gargantuan relief of Robert E. Lee and Stonewall Jackson striking heroic poses on horseback. Now this monument actually exists, it was actually built, and for those of my listeners who are more knowledgeable about early 20th century history, you might recall the fact that after the monument's completion, Stone Mountain, Georgia was the very place where the Ku Klux Klan was revived in its second and most violent incarnation. Swelling throngs of hooded clansmen descended on Stone Mountain, illuminating its face with thousands of torches to pledge their undying fealty to the cause of white supremacy. Oh, did I mention that uh, the Stone Mountain Project was funded by the KKK? They weren't secretive about it either, because just like today, the government doesn't consider the Klan a terrorist organization. Now, for uh, clarity's sake, there are three incarnations of the Klan. We are currently living through the third. The first was a vigilante group of Confederate veterans that died out shortly after the Civil War, and the second is the one that funded Stone Mountain. Now, the membership of the second clan peaked around 1924 at between three and six million. You know what the total population of America was in 1924? 114 million. So let's do some napkin math real quick and say that in 1924 there were around four and a half million people in the clan. And mind you, I'm erring towards the conservative side here. That means that in 1924, a full 4% of the entire country of America was a dues-paying member of the KKK. So yeah, they could fund a monument if they wanted to. So it turns out that Borglum, who they hired for their white supremacist statue, was perfectly on the level. He referred to Native Americans as a, quote, mongrel horde that was overrunning the pure white bloodline, and in a nice foreshadowing of his future work, he was once quoted as saying, I would not trust an Indian offhand nine out of ten, where I would not trust a white man one out of ten. So, in general, it sounds like old Gutsan was a real amiable guy by all stretches of the imagination. He also got super involved in the inner workings of clan politics. And you know what the funny part is? He didn't even get to finish his ugly-ass sculpture. In 1925, Doan Robinson, the state historian for South Dakota, approached Borglum about a new project, a colossal sculpture of four famous presidents, carved and blasted into the side of the most sacred mountain in the Black Hills. Borglum, of course, accepted and was swiftly fired by the Klan for having the audacity of sculpting those damn Yankee scoundrels. The original site for the massive sculptures was a series of tall, thin granite formations called needles. But Borglum would dismiss the location, stating that the presidents would appear as totem poles. Instead, he chose the face of the most sacred mountain in the sacred lands of the Lakota, land which still belonged to the tribe and had been illegally seized by the United States government. 
It was to be a, quote, triumph of modern society and democracy. Cruelly, it was also intended to be a model for the native peoples on whose land the abomination would be carved. Construction would begin in 1927 and stretch on for 14 years until 1941. Borglum himself would not live to see the sculpture finished. The technical details of construction are not very important, and so I won't cover them here. But one by one, as the 60-foot-tall heads were finished, they were unveiled with great fanfare, draped behind massive American flags. Their faces... Washington, Jefferson, Lincoln, and Roosevelt were meant to symbolize those who founded and united the country. So if you've been paying attention up to this point, you may have come to the conclusion that the location of and people who built Mount Rushmore have a very unsavory history. But what of the figures on the sculpture itself? Well, Washington and Jefferson both owned scores of enslaved people. You know Washington's estate, Mount Vernon in Virginia? Well, you see, Washington not only signed the very first fugitive slave law, but he himself owned over a hundred human beings. During colonial times, Washington spent a lot of time in Philadelphia, and so his slaves came with him. There was only one problem. In 1780, Pennsylvania passed the Gradual Abolition Act, which stated that any enslaved person who was over the age of 28 or who had been living in the state more than six months was automatically freed. And in response, every five and a half months, the Washingtons led their slaves out of Pennsylvania and back to Mount Vernon. That's some pretty evil shit. Washington's fake teeth, by the way, when we were in school, we learned they were made out of wood. They're actually made out of slave teeth. Thomas Jefferson might be worse. Thomas Jefferson owned a lot of people at Monticello, about 175. But one of them, named Sally Hemings, is who I'll be talking about here. She was brought to Monticello as a baby. And when she was 14, and Thomas Jefferson was 44, well, there are not a lot of textbooks that mention it, but those that do call it a relationship. Let me be perfectly clear. There was no relationship. That implies some kind of mutual respect. Sally Hemings was Jefferson's personal property. He did not consider her a human being, and enslaved people had no way to fight off sexual advances from the people who called them property. What happened between Thomas Jefferson and Sally Hemings was not romance. It was rape. Thomas Jefferson raped Sally Hemings starting at age 14 and lasting his entire life. Sally Hemings would go on to have six children. The consensus among historians is that all the six of them were Thomas Jefferson's. Her first child would be born before she turned 15. Of all the humans Thomas Jefferson ever owned, he only freed 
six people, the children of Sally Hemings. But he would never free Sally herself, keeping her trapped in a personal hell until he died on July 4th, 1826. For what it's worth, if anything at all, Sally Hemings outlived her torturer, but not by much. She lived the last nine years of her life with two of her sons in Charlottesville, Virginia, where she got to meet her first grandchild. In 1998, a DNA test concluded that the descendants of Sally Hemings were undeniably related to Thomas Jefferson. There is your proof. And, um, not to harp on this for too long, because I do have two more presidents and a musical to talk about, but sometimes people will say that we can't judge historical figures by modern moral standards. We absolutely can, and you know why? Because people have always known that slavery was wrong. It didn't take 200 years for people to recognize the hypocrisy in slave owners penning the flowery phrase proclaiming that all men are created equal. In 1776, an Englishman named Thomas Day read the Declaration of Independence and remarked, quote, If there be an object truly ridiculous in nature... It is an American patriot signing resolutions of independency with one hand and with the other brandishing a whip over his affrighted slaves. In the 1790s, the East India Sugar Company began to produce and market sugar that had not been produced by slave labor. Emblazoned in fat gold letters on the side of each jar were the words East India Sugar, not made by slaves. What both of those things serve to illustrate, of course, is that people have always known that slavery is wrong. Don't give me that bullshit that apparently these guys were too stupid to realize the immorality of their actions. Because if they're too clueless to realize that owning humans is a bad thing, then I think that might call into question a lot of their other choices as well. But what about Lincoln? I mean, he freed the slaves after all. Well... We're not going to talk about the fact that Lincoln viewed freeing the slaves not as a humanitarian issue, but instead saw the Emancipation Proclamation as a military strategy, or the fact that Lincoln, for most of his life, had no problem with slavery, or the fact that Lincoln didn't view black people as social, political, or human equals. The important thing with Lincoln is the Native Americans. Yes, he ended one incarnation of slavery in the United States, and that is to be lauded. But he also massively expanded the scope of the genocidal extermination of Native Americans in the West, which I would say is in especially poor taste to memorialize such a person on Native lands. Teddy Roosevelt was no angel either. Not only did he spur on the expansion of the American Empire, which during his administration was an exactor of misery around the globe, but he was also famed for holding such sentiments like those found in his book, The Winning of the West, which I'll just, I'll just read a sentence from here. I don't go so far as to think that the only good Indians are dead Indians, but I believe nine out of every ten are. Oy. But hey, the guy made some parks. <laughs> so why am I talking about all of this? Well, 
because their ugly mugs are stretched six stories high on the side of a sacred mountain. You don't make 60-foot-tall statues of people whose complicated legacies you want to view with nuance. As a matter of fact, it's very rare that you make a statue of someone who you even want to mildly critique. Statues of historical figures. They are an art of veneration, of celebration. They're not for remembering our dark past or standing as a stark reminders for how we must better ourselves. A normal-sized statue exists to glorify, to honor someone by casting them in bronze for time immemorium. If a normal statue is to glorify, then a massive statue is to deify. It both elevates the subject to a god and reduces it to an idea. And when we reduce people to ideas, then the name Washington becomes synonymous with freedom, and we lose the ability to actually engage with these figures. Our history becomes a storybook fantasy. It's revisionist. All of a sudden, we have murals, like the Apotheosis of Washington, located in the dome of the Capitol building, that depicts George Washington in just about the same way that the Catholic Church depicts God perched upon a cloud, surrounded by a heavenly chorus draped in flowing robes, limitless in his knowledge and virtue. With imagery like that comes the total sanitization of who this person actually was. Suddenly, they can do no wrong. George Washington ceases to be an abusive alcoholic slave owner, and instead becomes a paragon of virtue, emblematic of all that is good in the United States. His teeth are now made of wood, and he cannot tell a lie. I've talked about this kind of rehabilitation effect many times across many different episodes. Usually it's been about George Bush or Ronald Reagan. But the deification of the Founding Fathers is much more extreme and not limited to a simple rehabilitation. This national lie infects every aspect of our culture, to the point where the two cannot be separated. To sum it up nicely, Mount Rushmore, and places like it, are meant to get us to believe a very big lie. They're revisionist colonial propaganda meant to sell us on a narrative of a righteous and free America that has never existed. And so speaking about revisionist colonial propaganda... I figure it's time to round out this episode by talking about Hamilton. So Hamilton does something very interesting. Earlier, I said that we can judge historical figures by modern moral standards, which is true. But what Hamilton does is take those modern standards and transpose them back onto someone who did not have them. There's certainly some kind of devious humor in having what in reality was a group of white men played by a diverse cast. It's good writing because Hamilton and friends would have absolutely hated it. But the musical does incredible damage to itself by only being tangentially self-aware of this fact. Rather, the entire musical is concerned with glorifying and romanticizing the life of Alexander Hamilton and doesn't make any meaningful effort to critique his life and deeds. 
the show is sure to make a point that Hamilton was opposed to the institution of slavery. But what it doesn't mention is that that supposedly strongly held conviction didn't stop him from marrying Elizabeth Schuyler, a New Yorker whose family had derived all of their wealth from their massive amount of slaves. They also don't mention how the abolitionist Alexander Hamilton personally bought and sold human beings on behalf of his new in-laws. In this regard, Hamilton reveals itself as completely unserious about confronting the rather serious problems that stem from its source. When engaging with a piece of media, I like to ask myself, what is this trying to make me feel? In the case of Hamilton, it's pretty obvious that it's trying to make you feel admiration. It's trying to make you respect Alexander Hamilton, who it portrays as a likable and ultimately good man. Something that he was simply not. Hamilton is a hypocritical piece of media. It puts on a window dressing of diversity in order to sugarcoat a bitter pill. Its ultimate goal is to make you gush over an historical figure who probably would have hated you. Mount Rushmore and Hamilton are both pieces of propaganda, but underneath the surface they are two very different beasts. Mount Rushmore is a fossil from a society which sought to dominate and eliminate its enemies with overwhelming violence and force. That society then carved the faces of its leaders into the sacred mountain of their foes to demonstrate how much they were capable of and how little they cared. Mount Rushmore is propaganda of brute force. Hamilton is propaganda of elegance. It's meant to dazzle you with a song and dance and spectacle, and in doing so, subconsciously accept the reality that it spoon-feeds to you. If we look at Hamilton through even the weakest of historical lenses, then we will immediately find that it's a load of horseshit. It's a fantasy. The goal of Hamilton is to subtly rewrite our past. Because if we knew who these people really were, then the American people might wake up one day and come to the realization that we were taught a lie. And our country is built on a foundation of sand. Over the course of writing this episode, I kept wondering... If Alexander Hamilton were brought into the future to see the musical based on his life, what would he say? Time and time again, I have kept arriving at the same answer. Something incredibly racist. Thanks for listening to this episode of Hidden History. If you like what I do, then subscribe to the show on Spotify. Review it on Apple Podcasts, or follow the show on Twitter, at HIDDNHistoryPod. This is Ellis Tucci at Hidden History, signing off.